Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. So we're in Ramadan, what is it, the sixth day already, time flies. And I thought that rather than do my usual <coughs> slightly bookish thing, I do something a little more uh, gentle and uh, focus on reading and hopefully getting some blessings from the pages of uh, certainly a leader from a time uh, long gone by, uh, focusing in particular on this leader's reflections on Ramadan, Tarawih, hunger, detachment, service, charity, those virtues which we try to cultivate in this uh, blessed time. Uh, I thought initially it might be interesting to focus on, if I'm looking at a spiritual figure rather than an alim or a, a political leader, uh, to look at the life of um, Shahidullah Faridi. Died in 1978, so we've just passed the 40th anniversary of his death, and perhaps particularly because he was English, began as um, John Gilbert Leonard, uh, might be particularly relevant, uh, perhaps uh, an inspiration to those who think that if you're born in this uh, wind-blasted northern isle, uh, you're unlikely ever to join the caravan of the saints, but he was certainly revered as a uh, as a saint and somebody whose oros is actually coming up. It's in Ramadan, he has a big mazar in Karachi and it's interesting to see how uh, he was able to uphold the highest traditions of asceticism, sanctity, in an age which had set its face against it. His father was a very wealthy millionaire paper manufacturer who was quite horrified by the fact that both of his sons not just John, but William from this uh, very elite family, had gone east and had become dervishes in the Chishti Sabri Tariqa. And in fact, if you go to the uh, mausoleum of uh, Al-Hujwiri, Data Saab, which is like the spiritual hub of Lahore, which was sadly in the, the, the press recently, you'll find that amongst the lesser mausoleums there, there's the mausoleum of Farooq Saab, who died 19... 45, the twilight of the British uh, rule in India, who was actually William Leonard and a convert who became so revered as a man of God that he achieved the honour of being uh, interred in that uh, very special place. But his uh, brother, uh, Shahidullah, ended up after partition with his own dergah in Karachi, where he attracted thousands of disciples um, you can still meet some of them. Uh, and was particularly known for two things that I want to focus on, uh, which was the Chishti Tariqa's famous hospitality, feeding the poor, it'am ta'am, even though there's lots of stories about Shahidullah once when he went back to England and his father took him up to Oxford Street shopping, trying to get him to look a bit smarter and had a famous uh, argument with him in, in Selfridges to the amazement of the shop girls. He didn't want this coat, and he didn't want that coat, and he didn't want the other coat. Which coat did he want? He didn't want a coat at all. He'd already bought some kind of tatty thing with him from India, a 
that was fine. Uh, a clash of two worlds. Uh, but very much in the Chishti Zahid tradition, they have resurrected this ancient original meaning of sof. What is this word, tasawuf, which we hear banded about, usually by the ignorant on all sides? Well, it originates with the custom of the Holy Prophet, والسلام, to wear wool. And very often, if you look at the cases where that's specifically mentioned in the seerah and the hadith, you find that it's associated with his, his tarqa dunya, with his abandonment of worldly comforts and pleasure, because in a desert climate, wool is a lot cheaper than cotton or linen, but it's kind of hot and uncomfortable. And, uh, uh, but this was what he wore. And so to wear Borodan min sof as the Holy Prophet did, has been the bad, if you like, of the mystic, but it's a rather vague and perhaps unhelpful word, but of the, the one who sets his face against worldly things. Um, and that is the real meaning of Tasawwuf and the Sofi, uh, the one who is associated with Tarkad Dunya, and this is perhaps nowadays the least popular aspect of the sunnah, with everybody rushing after material goods, the radical example of the Holy Prophet, who didn't just piously urge feeding the poor, but was poor himself, uh, binding that flat stone uh, across his stomach because of the pangs of hunger, without a coin spending the night in his house. These are neglected sunan, let's face it, uh, but part, an axiomatic part of his life. Giving, not taking, making sure that nothing remains with you um, at the end of the day. If there's a coin, if there's food, you go out and find somebody to give it to. Radical tawakkul. Mm. That's the sunnah of wearing sof, which is not terribly popular nowadays. Which of us seriously does it? Let's be honest. But in the month of Ramadan, when we are hungry and the stomach starts to hurt and we are amongst the hungry rather than just moralizing about them, we perhaps get some kind of tiny taste of what it is actually to practice what we preach and to experience uh, that uh, radical reliance on divine providence, which was the the most challenging aspect of the seerah of the Chosen One, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So I thought about doing uh, Shahidullah Faridi for so many reasons, and his feeding the poor still um, regularly at uh, his uh, langar in Karachi, the poor are fed. Uh, but also uh, the fact that most of his disciples turned out to be women, even though he had no connection with anything that we might nowadays understand as feminism. Uh, there's a particular tradition amongst the Chishtia for being particularly uh, appealing to female disciples. So uh, what I want to do instead of looking at Shahidullah Faridi, who really never talked about his life, it was totally amazing. And if you meet surviving disciples, as I've done, you hear uh, the most incredible anecdotes, a very saintly, miracle-working, uh, self-giving faqir, a man who just lived in a single room and just gave all the time. Uh, that because there's so little information about him, I'd like to turn to one of his spiritual forebears, very much in the same uh, tradition of fasting, of hunger, of asceticism, of tarqa dunya, 
and that's the great uh, saint of Delhi, Nizamuddin Awliya. There's just more information about him, largely because his, uh, one of his uh, disciples, Amir Hassan Sijzi, wrote a book, Fawa'id al-Fu'ad, The Benefits of the Heart, uh, which uh, relate a kind of diary after each majlis of the Sheikh Sijdi would write down what the Sheikh has said in that particular majlis. And so we have that, and it's even in English. Um, Bruce Lawrence did a perfectly serviceable translation, <coughs> translated as morals for the heart, which is fine. Fa'ida is kind of the benefit, the moral benefit of a particular discourse. And it only covers a few hundred out of the thousands and thousands of discourses that he gave during his life. But it, it gives a good... Uh, quite a granular explanation of what it was actually like to sit at the feet of a great uh, Zahid, a great Wali. Um, so I'm going to be doing some readings from that text, rather than just boring you with historiographic uh, details, uh, and reflecting on ways in which this can help us to contextualise our experience of uh, renouncing the world during this uh, fasting month of Ramadan. So his medieval Delhi, and if you've been to Delhi, or even if you haven't been, you'll know that his Mazar is kind of the, in many ways, the spiritual hub of the city. There isn't a Hindu shrine that really competes with it in terms of the gigantic press of people who go there every Wednesday and Sunday. They have the langar with the vicar and the free food for everybody. And very often a majority of people who go are actually Hindus or people from other religions because of the famous, shall we say, pre-BJP, pre-ideological Indian love of holiness, wherever or whatever it might be manifested in. So uh, somebody who still dispenses blessings and benefits and hospitality to a vast number of people, irrespective of creed. It's uh, an extraordinary place. They have a website now. Uh, so someone who, after seven centuries, is still exerting a, an influence. <coughs> and uh, somebody who uh, ref invites us to reflect on what Islam did in India, in Hindustan. Read a formal history and it sounds like just a bunch of sultans fighting each other and fighting for conquest and... Uh, often not very edifying. Even though the sultans brought in many ways many benefits in a kind of imperial way. So the main sultan in the time of Nizamuddin Awliya, Ala Eddin Khalji, even though he lived through many, many reigns, <coughs> was not just famous for endlessly conquering places from rival sultans and bringing the booty back to Delhi and building new wonders, but also <coughs> for public works. Delhi was one of the biggest cities in the world and because of the seasonal nature of the monsoon needed a reliable supply of water. <coughs> so the great reservoirs around Delhi, the Hauz, the greatest of them is the Hauzi Alai, which he built, he said, in order to build something bigger than his predecessor, which is the Hauzi Shamsi. They were always vying with each other, but vying in good works and the population benefited uh, the presence of a police force, the presence of uh, city walls, night watchmen, a postal system, decent <coughs> roads. Um, these were 
uh, something that were new in the Indian experience. Uh, the, I've recently been looking at Ian Alman's new book. I can't remember if I've already mentioned him. He works a bit on Islam and German romanticism and has some interesting things to say about uh, uh, Nietzsche's interesting relationship to Islam. And his new book is on Nirad Chowdhury, who is one of India's great 20th century authors. He died back in the 90s, I think. He's buried in Oxford. Um, and a very cross-grained but brilliant person who knew just about every language you could imagine. A uh, very Europeanized Bengali intellectual uh, it tends to be from Bengal, the Calcutta area, that the real thinkers of India have come from in the uh, 19th, 20th century, um, even before Ram Mohan Roy and that movement, the first indigenous Indian stirrings of a kind of literary and philosophical renaissance in the face of uh, the fact of British uh, imperial rule. Um, somebody like Rabindranath Tagore would be from that world, Narayan, the short story uh, novelist, other custodians of the Indic conscience, uh, usually Hindu, and Nirad Chaudhary was also from a Hindu background, but really an independent thinker. Uh, and he had some interesting things to say about the Muslim presence. He kind of has the beginnings of a Hindu resentment complex here and there, but he does say <laughs> some interesting things about the the monotheistic ethic and what that did for India. He's generally quite contemptuous of Hinduism because he sees, um, rightly or wrongly, Hinduism as a tradition that, because of the idea of samsara and reincarnation, doesn't really have a sense that human suffering is real rather than deserved. If my child gets sick, that's because it's the reincarnation of some other being that did something bad, and this is karmic suffering. It's just right and proper in the nature of existence. And this is often a, a charge that, say, Christian polemicists will lay at the door of, of Buddhism as well. It can't really deal with the, the shocking fact of, of suffering, and, and therefore good works, charity and so forth, tend not to exist. And instead, you have an immensely stratified vision of society. And because of this moral reluctance, according to Chowdhury at any rate, uh, Islam reinvigorated <coughs> the civilizational life of the subcontinent. So he writes things like this. Um, the conquest foregrounded the Muslim over the Hindu as a triumph of virility over effeminacy, of courage over cowardice, of the lust and desire for life over the fear and resentment of it. And then Alman goes on, this sentiment becomes so focused it makes even the non-Hindu reader uncomfortable when Chowdhury writes, quote, how amply the Hindus of the 12th century deserved to go down before the virile and living Muslims. Um, so there is a certain sense in which there was a, a kind of injection of testosterone and of adrenaline in the very static uh, and hierarchical world of caste Hinduism and that Islam prophetically turned things upside down with necessarily uh, considerable disruption. But the introduction of a new spiritual principle, the sage who can sit with people from any social background was something that necessarily introduced a, a new alchemy into the enormously profound spiritual life of the subcontinent. Um, I had a colleague who uh, was very a great Sanskritist and studied with a, with a pandit in India. 
uh, but they said, this is an American guy, you know, I had to sit at the guy's garden gate with my hair wet, because if a hair from my head fell into the land of the Brahmin, it would have to be ritually cleansed, and this was a huge inconvenience, because I'm just a Westerner, I'm unclean, I'm below the untouchables. Yeah, he still liked the pundit and uh, admired the literature that he was studying, but that is how things were. And in some places in India still are. So the introduction of the monotheistic principle, remember the holy prophet, Ali Salat Salam, he has Ethiopians and Persians and everybody in his entourage, and it doesn't make a difference. His overcoming the tribal system of the ancient Arabs uh, represented uh, an extraordinary breath of oxygen into that static world, and a new spiritual type emerged. And certainly Nizamuddin Aulia is an example of how the greatness of Indian Indic spirituality is uh, reinforced but also massively reinvigorated by a new sense of uh, human unity and very frequently we find him adverting to the fact that uh, all human beings are from Adam, if you have that idea. Kunu ibadallahi ikhwana, be slaves of Allah as brothers uh, and this um, despite certain stratifications that you find amongst Muslims of subcontinental origin, uh, remains the, the Sharia principle. So, uh, the Muslims arrive in India, and this spiritual tradition arrives as well. And uh, in the case of Nizamuddin Awliya, already this is in the seventh century of Islam, so uh, there's been a presence for, for some time, but it's, it's through these these Zahids, these ascetics, that Islam actually starts to spread in the populace. In the original conquest, and it goes back to Umayyad times, at least in Sindh, in the uh, far west of the subcontinent, didn't really produce much by way of uh, Islamization, because the soldiers and the ulama just kept to themselves in cantonments, rather like you know, the British in India, didn't mix with the natives very much. The ulama were speaking their own languages and engaging with Muslim issues. Uh, but once you have particularly tariqas like the tariq of Mu'ayyadin Chishti, whose khalifas become masters of indigenous languages and who develop forms of da'wah that reach out to the very poorest people and are of the poorest people, rather than stuck in the nice house of the mufti or the, the, the governor's palace, but of the population, then you find Islam really spreading, and not just as is conventionally understood amongst the uh, untouchables and the shudras and the people at the bottom of the, the, the social food chain, but um, some elite people as well, and they are attracted by the, uh, the new spiritual principle that is at work. So uh, the uh, information that we have about Nizamuddin Awliya represents kind of the maturation of uh, Islamic spirituality in India largely comes in modern times from the work of an Indian historian, Khaliq Ahmad Nizami, whose book on Nizamuddin Awliya, naturally we have in the CMC library upstairs. Uh, he was a very uh, significant historian of mid-late 20th century uh, India, who also has a book on Baba Farid and on uh, the 12th century uh, administrative system of uh, the Muslim subcontinent. Uh, so what I'll be doing for the rest of this morning is basically 
tracing uh, the narrative uh, that he outlines uh, and benefiting uh, from his scholarship. Nizamuddin Aulia is from Ahlil Bayt. <coughs> he is uh, descended from the Imam Ali and Naqi, one of the 12 Imams that we usually identify as the Shi'i Imams, even though they're venerated by the uh, Sunnis as well. Uh, and Ali and Naqi had two famous sons. One was Hassan al-Askari, who went on to become the next Imam, and the other was Ja'far al-Sani, Ja'far II, who is the ancestor of the, the of Khwaja Nizamuddin Awliya. And they settle in Central Asia, in Bukhara, in the uh, second and third centuries of Islam. And uh, then, as so often happens, uh, they become refugees, asylum seekers. They have that experience of disruption, which often turns out to be spiritually very, uh, very bracing. So it's the same Mongol invasion of Central Asia that drives Bahaddin Walad, with the little boy who becomes Jalal din Rumi, to the west, to uh, Anatolia, and they settle in Konya, that drives the family of the descendants of Imam Ali and Naqi south to the subcontinent, escaping the scourge of the Mongols. And they get out of Bukhara just in time, and maybe 35,000, 40,000 people are immediately put to the sword. And the remainder, particularly people who have professions, uh, leather workers and calligraphers and so forth, are carted off in servile captivity to the Mongol capital of Karakoram, and the city of Bukhara is deserted, having been one of the great metropoli of Islam. Uh, Central Asia, in many ways, never really recovers from the Mongol invasions because it's, everybody is dead. Everybody is dead. There's just crows and the land is... There's still parts of Uzbekistan that haven't been properly repopulated uh, following the Mongol catastrophe eight centuries ago. So uh, the family move to... Uh, at a town in India called Badaon, usually B-A-D-A-O-N, sometimes B-A-D-A-U-N. Uh, and this was, at the time, about the second most distinguished center for Islamic scholarship in Hindustan. Uh, and it was absolutely full of madrasas, hospices, uh, khanaqas, bridges, uh, it was a wonder of early Islamic India and a home of very many saints. So both of Khwaja uh, Nizamuddin Awliya's grandfathers settled there. That's Khwaja Ali and Khwaja Arab to this little town which is called Qubbatul Islam. It's not huge but it has so many scholars. Qubbatul Islam, the Dome of Islam. It's near the River Ganges. <coughs> um, and it's still a, a mainly Muslim town, uh, maybe 60% Muslim, uh, but a little bit forlorn because amongst the many catastrophes of the partition was that the, kind of, the Muslims who could afford to leave, middle classes and the elites left, leaving the ordinary guys and, and women behind to survive as best they could. So even though it's a mainly Muslim town, the kind of amazing... Uh, spiritual and uh, institutional infrastructure that was once characteristic of the city is kind of all cobwebby and broken down now. It's a, a melancholy kind of place, and that's the story of much of the subcontinent, of course, because of the 
bright idea somebody had that the best thing for the future of India's Muslims would be to divide them into three. Well, maybe it's worked out, maybe it hasn't, but for places like Badawan, it's a kind of shadow of its former self. But in those times, and in, as the city in which Khawaja Nizamuddin Awliya spent the first 20 years of his life, it was astounding. Saints and scholars on every street corner. It also tended to be known as a place where you'd go if you really didn't want to be too close to the government. In this Chishti tradition and in the Sufi tradition generally, you run away from the Sultan. You don't have anything to do with political power. Firstly, you don't need the money, and what else do they have to offer? Uh, and secondly, they're involved in all kinds of illicit acts. Luxury is only the least of their sins, but illicit taxation and oppression and unnecessary wars, etc., etc. It's not where the good Muslim wants to be. So uh, the, the pious and the devout, the fastidious, tended to leave Delhi in the direction of uh, this town, Badawan, which made it an even more kind of spiritual, reclusive, ascetical, but uh, glittering jewel in the, the Muslim crown. Um, certainly Nizamuddin Awliya always regards his roots as being there, even though at the age of 19 he leaves with his mother for Delhi and he never goes back. He's always asking about the town and when uh, Sijzi, his, uh, the one who wrote this for, for Ad Mentions, I've been travelling from Bengal and we went through Badawan and I visited the tombs and I visited the tombs of your, your father and your grandfathers and Nizamuddin Awliya is said to have wept copiously. He had a kind of nostalgia for the, for the city. And he was also very proud of his identity in a way that we need to remember as Muslims. Islam, the universal religion, but being proud of your roots and where you are from is also really important. The Holy Prophet's yearning for Makkah was not just a strategic desire, but because that was his homeland, it's where he was from. <coughs> Uh, as the poet says, I think it's from Ibn Mu'taz, a secular Abbasid poet, who says, however far in the world your heart may travel, uh, your true love is the place where you began However many places in the earth a man may settle, his yearning is always for the first of those places. And this idea of nostalgia for where you originated, um, not done to excess, of course, is a natural human faculty. So he certainly has this. In one of his interesting uh, discourses, he says it, it's such a fantastic place that the dialect of that place is the language I used when I said, yes, I bear witness at the day of when I was initially pledging my allegiance to my Lord, when all the nations were assembled, this is the great verse in the Qur'an, and everybody bore witness to their own nature and the divine nature in that first primordial covenant, he said, yes, I testify in the dialect of that town. So uh, the universalism of Islam also um, relates to people's particular patriotism, if you like, a love of place, which is certainly uh, a fitri, human impulse and something uh, which the saints um, can manifest. So two grandfathers um, and the 
The Khwaja Arab gives his daughter Bibi Zuleikha to uh, the other Khwaja Ahmed, uh, and uh, the father is born. The father dies, we're told, when Khwaja Nizamuddin Awliya is still young or a baby or perhaps yet unborn. The sources don't really give us a sense of it, but we know he was basically half an orphan, rather like you know, the Holy Prophet and is brought up by his mother for a while. She is uh, from this obviously noble family, prophetic family, uh, very aristocratic in her bearing, hospitable, very devout, uh, but absolutely penurious after the father dies, in the absence of anything like a social support system for people who are still refugees, they don't have larger family in the neighborhood, uh, she subsists on almost nothing. And Khwaja Nizamuddin Awliya's being accustomed to real poverty and hunger is something that comes from you know, the necessities of his childhood. Um, she hopes for great things for her son and sends him to the great scholars of the city of, of Badawan. Uh, one of them is called Shadi Mukri, uh, who was originally uh, the slave of a wealthy Hindu who um, uh, bought, purchased his own uh, freedom and was a Qur'an specialist. He knew the seven qira'at. And as often happens with people who dedicate their lives to the Qur'an, all kinds of interesting miracles are attributed to him. Um, the kind of the fiery radiance of the divine writ within one produces interesting manifestations. So it was believed in Badawan that if you sent your son to study your kind of qaida, your basic uh, reading Qur'an um, to Shadi Mukrit, that one day, somehow or other, that child would certainly end up as a hafiz. And actually, Nizamuddin Awliya becomes a hafiz decades later in his life, but he always attributes it to that uh, initial kind of tasting of the Qur'anic ocean at the hands of this Shadi Mukri. Um, the other is a Mullah Alaeddin Usuli, who is a scholar who again was really impoverished. And it's recorded that sometimes he was so hungry that he could hardly speak during his, uh, during his lessons. But it's he who teaches him the basics of Hanafi Fiqh. He studies the Hidayah of Burhanuddin Marghinani, of course, another Khorasani, and uh, Khuduri. Um, and there is a basic graduation ceremony which has to be really austere. Graduation ceremony in those days was quite a magnificent affair. There was a special turban which was wound by the uh, sheikh and placed on your head and it had a line of silk in it and it was a big deal. They had a very simplified version of this. But he becomes a scholar when he's still really just uh, a child. Uh, but he wants to move on to Delhi to study with the greater scholars there, so he uh, asks his mother's permission. And uh, even though they don't know anybody there, uh, she agrees and they go together. She's kind of in her 40s by this time. They travel to the city of Delhi and they experience also great poverty. They have to move house several times in uh, some of the poorest slum quarters of the, the great city. On some days, there would be nothing to eat at all, just nothing. And on those days, uh, she, she would tell the son, Nizamuddin, today we are doyufullah, we are God's guests. And he'd feel a special blessing coming from that, just reliant upon the creator. 
And he would relate that uh, sometimes when several days when they had had something to eat went by, uh, he would kind of miss those days when there was a special blessing of just nothing in the house at all. Um, she becomes sick. It's possible that, um, you know, that extreme hunger, malnutrition contributes to this, but she makes a great du'a for him before her death. Uh, she has no family members to entrust uh, her son to, but she makes a du'a saying, Oh Allah, I entrust him to your care. And he always felt that the subsequent protection that he'd received from the divine presence in his life came from his mother's prayer. And you find this quite often with the mothers of the, the, the awliya, and uh, as we'll see shortly, uh, his own teacher, the one who came to be his teacher, was uh, Farid ad-Din Ganji Shakar of Ajwadan, uh, regarded his own mother as having been his principal uh, sort of instructor in the spiritual way. This is... This is quite common, but a kind of veiled phenomenon, given the nature of Muslim society. You know, we don't seek for uh, a public profile. We don't seek for prestige or status. And the traditional uh, charism of the woman is to serve and to make sacrifices for the sake of God um, behind closed doors. And that's how she, uh, she transcends ego, and that's her path to sainthood. But recording that, most of it is not recorded. And they didn't care because they were doing it for God rather than to be included in some spiffy 21st century biography of Indian saints. That was not their concern. They were masturat in all sense, uh, veiled ones. So in uh, Delhi, he used to go and sit by the river, Jamuna, which has a big role, even a symbolic role in the development of North Indian Sufism, and that's why he goes in order to complete his hefs of the Qur'an, walks up and down beside the river, memorizing uh, with a strong inclination to seclusion. He doesn't feel at home, really, in this great strange city, and he really wants to be the kind of anchorite who just lives alone, a solitary dervish. Uh, and then as he was memorizing, uh, and this is a famous story, a very beautifully dressed young man comes up to him, uh, tells, telling him, are you not afraid that you will be ashamed before the Holy Prophet وسلم, on the day of judgment when so many people are flocking to him for help? Do you want to be alone and not follow his way? Uh, be focused on God through loving his creatures. And this was the moment of his tolba when he realized that uh, his way would not be the way of the, the, the hermit, but the way of one who serves others and exists in the crowd, dar amjuman, amongst the masses. And then he makes a symbolic gift of all the food he has on him to the young man who then leaves. So it's a kind of symbolic event, but it indicates something of the particular temper of Nizamuddin Awliya's uh, spirituality. So. He doesn't want to live in the city of Delhi itself because, like just about everybody of a past disposition, he's afraid that he'll just get caught up in the entanglements of this kind of all-powerful imperial state and be uh, dra dragooned into the bureaucracy. So he settles in a village near Delhi called Riaspur, which is on the banks of the river, which was then kind of just a few poor people, a few fishermen living there, not much going on. Um, 
And the extreme hunger continues. His mother is now dead. Uh, and he sustains himself as a scholar just by leaving a bowl outside his door, hoping that by the end of the day somebody will have put some food in it. Uh, he continues to learn. We tend to think Nizamuddin Awliya is the great sheikh with the Ors. Everybody goes to visit in Delhi. Uh, but actually, he was uh, an alim of a very considerable degree. And his teacher, uh, Baba Farid, insisted that you should only authorize somebody to carry on the, the path of Sufism. You can only become a muqaddam or a khalifa if you've really got your ijazah in the key Islamic sciences. Never authorize anybody into sawwuf who doesn't have that uh, exoteric armature. Uh, and, and he continues, studies with a number of significant scholars, including Kamal Adina Zahid, who's the best-known muhaddith or hadith scholar of Delhi. Um, and then the terrible time comes when he gets a message from the Sultan. He's been noticed, the last thing he wanted. And uh, the uh, Sultan has been busy confiscating things at random, confiscating land, confiscating property of rich merchants in order to continue his campaigns and his lifestyle. If you've been to the palaces of India, you'll see. Uh, if you go to the uh, palace in, in Lahore, which I've visited, they've got all kinds of interesting features, like a spiral staircase for elephants. Uh, the Indian sultans really knew how to live. Uh, so uh, the sultans are grabbing the, the wealth of the poor and of the scholars. And so the sheikh sends back a message to him saying, you've taken everything away, everything else from me. Do you want to take my prayer from me as well? Uh, is that all that I have left and you're going to take that? So uh, he continues to study for uh, a long time. We have ijazas that he has awarded from Kamal Adin Zahid, uh, Mashariq al-Anwar, famous hadith collection, which he'd memorized uh, when he's still in his when he's already in his forties. So it's not the standard image of you throw away the books and start clapping your hands and be a mystical Sufi. No, it's just an, uh, the uh, Sufi path is a way of deepening your understanding of exoteric scholarship and indeed disciplining yourself so that you have more time and capacity for memorization. And he becomes uh, particularly known in the sciences of fiqh and hadith. And you see that a lot in his discourses. Um, questions about some of the Ramadan discourses are just about issues in, in fiqh, moon sighting, uh, tarawih rules, and so forth. A lot of his classes are about uh, those things. Uh, he also becomes really well known as a debater, of course, in the Persian language, which is the language of the Muslim scholars in North India at the time. Um, so he was known as Nizamuddin Mahfil Shikan. He's got so many titles, but uh, Mahfil Shikan means breaker of gatherings. When he was in a gathering where the scholars were disputing, he could immediately shatter everybody with a well-chosen dalil or a hadith expressed in a particularly um, elegant and persuasive way. However, uh, the Sufi tradition and the Chishti tradition in particular oppose this and regard it as problematical. So you find that in his, in his majalis, as recorded by Sijizi, you don't get scenes of a lot of argumentation. He's always looking for something positive to say about uh, others. And this comes up 
as we'll see in his relations with uh, non-Muslims as well. So he's sitting in his majlis one day and his disciples are saying, look at that, you can look out the window, there's an idol worshipper, look at him going up and down this crude statue. Uh, and his response is, we can all learn something, not from his beliefs, but from the sincerity of his devotions. That's very characteristic. You don't make concessions, but you look for what is best in every situation uh, in order not to feel proud, so that you benefit rather than just end up feeling superior. Uh, so he moves away from the world of kind of formal rhetorical debating society um, dispute amongst the ulama and towards a more characteristically Irenic uh, approach, which he becomes well known for. Uh, he still hasn't found his, his sage, his guide. When he was still in the town of Badawan, he had heard of the repute of Baba Farid ad-Din Ganji Shakar of Ajodan, which is now called Pakpatan, which is um, in Pakistan. Um, but uh, one night when in Delhi, he heard a mu'azzin in the middle of the night reciting the famous verse, Alam yatni lilladina amanu an takhsha'a qulubuhum li dhikrillah wa ma nazala min al-haq. Has not the time come for those who believe that their hearts should submit to the remembrance of God and to the truth that has been revealed? So without any preparation, he just goes out of his house and walks off and goes to Adrodan, which is hundreds of miles away to the west. And he comes into the presence of the sheikh, who is now uh, around about 90 years old, the great Baba Farid. Um, and Khalid Nizami also has a good book about um, Baba Farid, which is also worth. And some of you, if you're from Pakistan, you may have traveled around Punjab, you may even have been to the place. It's uh, quite, uh, quite phenomenal. And so he comes into the presence of the sheikh, and the sheikh recites a poem. The flame of being separated from you has been burning our heart. The tempest of yearning to meet you has ravaged our lives. So the sheikh knows that this particular disciple is on his way. It's as if this is the star pupil that he's been waiting for all his life, this kind of tatty guy who comes from Delhi. Uh, and he's really nervous in the presence of the sheikh. Uh, and of course there are tests. First test is um, you will spend the night with us uh, and you will sleep in one of these beds, in one of these cots. And he sees a lot of the dervishes are just sleeping on the ground and it's the, the cots are for the, sort of the scholars and the senior people guests and but in the nick of time he suppresses any hint of protest and recognizes that uh, to accept a spiritual guide means that you accept the instructions of that guide so he then asks Baba Farid I'm at a crossroads should I give up my studies of Elma uh, and become a dervish or should I continue Baba Farid replies characteristically, in the Chishti lineage, I've never asked anybody to give up the pursuit of sacred knowledge of Elm. Continue as a scholar and as a dervish, and in the fullness of time, one of those qualities will prevail in you over the other. 
Um, he visits him every year in the month of Ramadan. This is his Ramadan practice. Um, he leaves behind everything in Delhi and walks to Adrodan and sleeps in the Khanaqa of the Sheikh, who is teaching him to overcome the residues of pride in his heart and to cultivate the love of others. Overcome pride, love others. And at the age of only 23, when the Sheikh is 93, he becomes his chief Khalifa and his deputy. But this only comes you know, after some sharp lessons. Uh, Baba Farid's principal practice in his formal majalis um, was to read and teach from a book called the Awarif al-Ma'arif of Shihabuddin Surawardi, which is one of the great classical texts of normative Sufism. And he had a rather defective manuscript from which he was reading. And on one occasion, the young uh, disciple said, O oh Master, I could get you a better copy. And this is taken to be an objection. And Baba Farid says, can this poor dervish not correct a bad copy by himself? Uh, Nizamuddin, horrified, throws himself down in apology and then kind of runs out and goes into the, the forest. India is still you know, full of wilderness areas at the time. Uh, in absolute despair. And finally, a friend goes from him to ask for Baba Farid's forgiveness. And Baba Farid says, what I do, I do to perfect you. A peer, a spiritual guide, is just a dresser of brides. It's an interesting expression. In other words, you ought to be uh, presented to the Lord in submission to the Lord of creation. I'm just the one who gets you ready for that role and that, uh, <clears throat> that experience. So uh, in the year 664, on the 13th of Ramadan, he formally gives him the khilafat to the amazement of people who have been in his dargah all his life. And he says, you will be a tree, a tree under whose cool shade all humanity will find a cure, will find healing. This idea of the sage as a tree, and in hot countries in particular, you know, trees are pretty welcome refuges from the burning of the sun. It's often used of the sultan, so famously, the dream of Osman, the founder of the Ottoman dynasty, is that he saw his sheikh touching his chest as he was sleeping, and a tree comes out, and animals and human beings of different kinds come to take a shelter under that tree, and that's his image of what his role as a ruler is going to be. But for the scholar as well, the tree which is just indifferent in who it shades, animals, human beings, different denominations, different genders. Uh, a tree is a generous, uh, generous uh, phenomenon, which is one reason why we use the image of the tree for designing the new Cambridge Mosque, of course. So it's time for him to return to Delhi. Uh, Baba Farid knows that he's got no money. He's just wearing a kind of rag, and he doesn't even have additional cloth in order to add patches to his rag. This is extreme destitution. In the Middle Ages, it wasn't so unusual. Uh, Baba Farid gives him uh, a silver coin for his journey. Nizamuddin knows that this is the last coin that Baba Farid possesses, and so he goes to him at iftar time, 
there's no food. And so he gives him back the coin. He places the coin at the master's feet. Uh, and Baba Farid prays that Allah will give him some share of the dunya because he's so ready to renounce this coin that he needs for his journey. The prayer is that he will not experience want. And Nizamuddin says, I fear that that would damage my heart. Baba Farid says, do not fear. What you possess will not involve you in any attachment or misfortune. Um, and Nizamuddin says this before departing, by appointing me as your Khalifa, you've done me a very great honor and have given me a treasure. However, I'm a student. I'm averse to dunya attachments. The calling is high beyond my ability. All I want from you is not khilafat, but just your good opinion and your kindness. But Baba Fried reassures him, says he's got his full confidence. And Hazrat Nizamuddin, unwilling to disobey his master, accepts the role. So he takes from him the symbolic prayer rug and the staff. And he gives him two pieces of advice as he's leaving. If you must incur debt, try to repay it quickly. Secondly, always try to please your enemies. Those are his parting words. And shortly afterwards, Baba Farid passes on to the abode of eternity. Nizamuddin is back in Delhi, this enormous world city full of need, destitution, religions, confusion, the terror of the palace, and sets to work. Very difficult to do anything without engaging somehow with the imperial bureaucracy. But he still manages to set up a vast network. This is one of the achievements of the Chishtia in particular. He sets up uh, a network of hundreds of centers and branches, as it were, of his movement all over India, Muslim India and beyond the boundaries. Uh, his disciples are sent out literally everywhere. Um, he is back in Riyaspur, which is now where he's buried, and is the Hazrat Nizamuddin, which is a bustling district of Delhi. There's even a Hazrat Nizamuddin railway station. It's just another city quarter. Uh, and lots of people are flooding in in order to benefit from his teachings. Uh, he is a, uh, a well-known ascetic Zahid who enjoys everyone's confidence. Um, the pattern of his life, life is shaped by the five daily prayers. Uh, he eats very little. At Sahur time, uh, once one of his friends heard him say, there are many poor who sleep in the corners of the mosques and patios of shops who have nothing to eat. How could any more food go down my throat? So here the kind of asceticism is linked to a sense of social responsibility. Most of the day was spent uh, just receiving visitors. High and low, they'd come to see him. Uh, except after Zohar, he would have his hadith class. This is a kind of formal darsi ilm. Uh, and at iftar, he would eat a piece of bread and some vegetables, and the rest he would distribute. And then he would go back to where he lived, which was basically just a wooden kind of shack on the roof of the dargah, the, uh, the retreat center which he built by the river. Um, so I mentioned that he has this strong aversion to associating with rulers, and this becomes part of his teachings. 
Do not approach the doors of kings, he says. Seek no recompense from them. If a letter came from the sultan, he would just leave it unopened. He'd never open it. The sultan, worried about this hugely popular phenomenon down the road in Riyazpur, would send spies to try and check him out. Is this political? Is this... Um, um, one of the sultans, Sultan Jalaluddin al-Khalji, made him a gift of some villages, but he refuses. And then the sultan tries to get him to come to the palace, uh, but without success. And Nizamuddin Awliya says, that's why my house has two doors. If he comes in through one, I run out through the other. <laughs> but a number of government disciples still become, government officials still become his disciples, and this is how he exercises his influence on society not through having some kind of political or economic control of it, but just through transforming individual souls. And they say that the city of Delhi acquired a different, more devout and more compassionate temper as a result of his apolitical lifestyle. One of his teachings, there's three kinds of dervishes. There's the salik, those who renounce the world and devote themselves entirely to dhikr and ascetical practice. That's the salik. There's the waqif, people who have a certain uh, balance between service in the world and service to God. And the raja'i, the hoper, the vain hoper, is those who have achieved some progress in their spiritual lives, but then become complacent or lose interest and just hope that God will somehow make things better for them or forgive them. Um, many of the people who are coming for blessings uh, are women, and I mentioned this in connection with um, Hazrat Shahidullah Faridi, and I've been in touch with some of his people who knew him, they're old ladies now, and the majority of them are women. <coughs> There's some interesting teachings. Uh, not a feminist by modern standards, an upholder of a traditional vision of society and dimorphism, but somebody who thought that the upliftment of society should come through respect. We've seen the importance of his mother and of his teacher's mother. Um, so he always taught that women were equally able spiritually uh, as men. Um, and he once said, if a tiger comes at you from its lair, do you bother to check whether it's male or female? In other words, what counts is the creature itself, and in the case of humanity, Bani Adam, these gender differentials are not the significant thing. So, yeah, very many uh, women are, are coming to see him. Um, we know a little bit about where he's staying, his Jama'at Khana. Uh, which is a large hall for the uh, sanat ceremonies, the dhikr to be held, with lots of little rooms, small rooms, uh, where his disciples would stay, uh, opening onto it. Um, and visitors would come all day. He never refused to see a visitor, and he never refused anybody bayah. Anybody who wanted to be his disciple um, would not be turned away. And he had uh, disciples from all religions, not just Muslims, and this is a famous aspect of many of the Chishti sheikhs, um, that you don't have to be Muslim in order to benefit somehow from the sage, although clearly his way is the Muhammadan way. Um, so 
these individuals are coming uh, and a lot of gifts are coming, what they call the futur in the tariqa, which is gifts of food. Uh, because of his uh, mission of sacred hospitality, which is the way of Mu'ayn Chishti of Ajmer himself, uh, much of the sheikh's effulgence is passed out not just through words of wisdom, but through practical gifts, and particularly gifts of food. So wealthy people, people hoping for the sheikh's blessings, prayers, forgiveness, whatever, act of tawbah, something to do before hajj or before you die, would give a lot of food to the dargah, which would then be uh, organized by officials who are appointed there um, and uh, distributed to the poor. So uh, enormous kitchens, they said the kitchens of his dargah were bigger than the royal kitchens in Delhi. And the rule of his khanqa was that no gift could remain for more than a week. So one of the practices that he would adopt before going for Jumu'ah prayer, before leaving his khanqa, would be to go to the storeroom to make sure that there was nothing left and everything had been meticulously swept and cleaned. So uh, this langar uh, fed a huge number of the poor of Delhi uh, and he liked to make it good food as well. He would appoint, appoint good cooks rather than just give people kind of the cheapest rubbishy stuff. Um, some of the food that was donated was of good quality so it was known to be uh, good food uh, and also uh, when he noticed people coming regularly, he would make inquiries and would allocate a stipend for those people once their circumstances had been uh, uh, acknowledged. So once he was um, walking by the river and he found a woman who was, had dug a well and was drawing water from the well rather than from the river. And he says, why don't you get your water from the river? We all drink from the river. And she says, ah, oh, the river, river water tastes so good that it gives me and my children an appetite for food. We don't have any food. But this water, um, it, it, it doesn't give us any kind of hunger. So hearing that, he adds her to the list of those who receive a regular stipend from the Lungar. And it's still the case. Thursdays and Sundays you get free food uh, from the Dargah of Nizamuddin Aulia in Delhi. So the poor, the barefoot, ragged, uh, sick masses are coming, uh, but also people from the elites. They're also interested in sanctity and salvation. Uh, one of them is Amir Khusrau, who is maybe the best known poet in India at the time, Tortia Hind, the songbird of India, um, who is really, even though he's of Turkic origin, like a lot of these migrants from Central Asia, uh, uh, really one of the maybe four or five greatest ever Persian poets uh, with his famous Khamsa, which is a huge volume with five extended poems on various secular and religious subjects. Um, writes a lot of court poetry. He has this Qiran al-Sa'dain, one of the great monuments of Persian literature, which is basically all about the splendor of the court and the wonder of the sultan. It's kind of royal panegyric is in that, in that uh, zone. Um, Educated in that not only did he know Persian, but he could write in Arabic and Sanskrit as well. Um, and he writes uh, a book about Nizamuddin Aulia, uh, which uh, has also survived, which is very flowery and baroque and difficult really to extract concrete information from. But he seems to have been his closest friend. It's interesting that even though Nizamuddin Aulia is living this ragged existence, distributing food to the poor, 
the guy who comes and, and spends evenings with him, and sometimes they talk late into the night, is this very kind of fancy elite poet from the royal court. They just somehow hit it off. Um, Yep, so this is how he spends his time. And uh, if you go there today, you'll see a lot of Muslims, non-Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, everybody goes there just to get something, uh, usually people from the lowest orders of society. But uh, Hindus used to come uh, as well, and there's some enigmatic stories. So, for instance, once uh, he noticed that there were six yogis, the Hindu ascetics, uh, standing outside the door of the Khanaka. Uh, and the disciples said, well, they've come to seek your blessings. Uh, and then the end of the day, they finish their meditation and they're about to leave and they're asked, why did you come? And they said, we tried to understand the spiritual place of the sheikh, but we couldn't understand. So what that means, who knows? But there's some kind of inter-religious deep exchange going on, despite the fact that he is, you know, from the Qubbat al-Islam, he is uh, axiomatically uh, embedded in his own Islamic tradition. But it is through these Shishti saints that so many, millions really, have come into Islam across the subcontinent, and the age of conquests and merchants uh, gave way to the age of mass conversions. And many of his disciples in remote areas uh, would spread Islam specifically amongst the uh, Hindu populations uh, through not adopting a kind of very elite foreign discourse. Um, unfortunately, this is not, it has to be said, the way in which tariqas function in the modern West, where they tend to be bastions of ethnic difference. If you go to a Chishti place in Luton now, it's not going to be engaging much with the non-Muslim population and bringing in everybody and speaking English. It will be a very mono-ethnic, a kind of bunker of somebody else's culture. So they're profoundly malfunctioning here now. Uh, but in their heyday uh, in India, these are the ones who provided the stepping stones to Islam for countless millions, which is why Islam is a religion of 30% uh, of the population of the subcontinent, if not more. Compare that to Christianity, which came to India long before Islam and had all of the advantage of uh, British rule for centuries. Christians are only about 1% of the population of India. So it's these people who live with the poor rather than the kind of English sergeant major or the missionary in his top hat. These people get into the culture, live with the culture, and experience the sufferings of the masses who win the hearts of the population. Um, and so it was. So in 1325, he dies. One of the last things he says is that when he dies, he wants there to be nothing left in his house or in the langar. So the food has to be distributed and everything swept and cleaned. And he designates Khaja uh, Nasiruddin Shirah as his uh, disciple, um, telling him that he has to stay in Delhi and suffer the hardships of life there. And the historians recall that when news of his death were, was, was known, every house in Delhi went into mourning, uh, Hindu and Muslim alike. And his janaza, led by the grandson of the great um, um, Bahadine Zakaria of Multan. Multan is the 
city of saints in Pakistan, uh, an amazing ancient place, and Bahá'u'lláh Zakaria's shrine is the biggest uh, edifice there, uh, and so it was that family that had this particular honour. So um, let's now move to what I really wanted to do, which is to hear the the words of the tradition directly. And I wanted to start with advice from his own teacher, uh, Baba Farid of uh, Pakpatan. Uh, now, you'll notice with this tradition that this is certainly not the highly intellectual, philosophical, Gnostic Sufism of the Ibn Arabi school that uh, also is coming into India at this time. There are people like Muhammad Burhan Puri and so forth, which becomes an enormously uh, brilliant and sophisticated tradition, which, of course, has its intrinsic legitimacy. This is more grassroots, working with the masses, compassion, feed the poor. It sees itself as being uh, closer to the original sunnah of sof, of um, selfless asceticism and wool-wearing. So these are not complex sentiments. They are straight from the heart. So from Baba Farid. Busy yourself ceaselessly with active discipline, mujahada, struggling against the ego. Laziness is the devil's workshop. In our way of life, fasting achieves 50% of success. Educate yourself and your dependents. Avoid all sinful actions. Always rectify your own faults before seeking to rectify others. What you hear from me, commit it to memory and spread it widely. If you have to <coughs> go into Eartikaf, uh, seclude yourself for a period, do so in a mosque <coughs> where the prayer, the namaz, is conducted in congregation. Deactivate your ego, your nafs. Make your nafs idle. Consider the world as being something far from you and as insubstantial. Renounce miserliness and all the desires of the world. When in privacy or seclusion, busy yourself with the worship of God. If in such seclusion you grow tired of large acts of worship, then try smaller ones. Should you be troubled by your ego, then gratify it with a little rest or some sleep. Shower your blessings and favours upon whoever may visit you. So these are the basic akhlaq of the tariq. Uh, there's nothing hugely intricate about this, uh, but it is through these teachings that India so substantively became Muslim, and it said that but for partition, which more or less stopped the conversion process in India, uh, within 300 years, India would have a strong Muslim majority. But of course, that, that tradition with the segregation of communities uh, has come to an end. So reading from the Fawaid uh, al-Fawaid of Amir Hassan Sijzi, who is um, one of his uh, disciples and who writes down what happened in some of the sheikhs' informal conversations. Um, I've just chosen a few of these, some of which are Ramadan-related. This is Friday the 5th of Ramadan, the year 707. What is the preeminent form of optional prayer, he asked. Then he explained that according to the decree of Maulana Zahiruddin Hafiz, may Allah grant him peace, it was the Taraweeh prayer. 
Every evening, recalled the master, he would also urge me to read three sections of the Qur'an so that after ten consecutive evenings I might complete the whole of the Qur'an and obtain the benefit of performing this task. At his command, after the congregational prayer, I would retire to observe the tarawih prayers. Good, he would explain to me, that is a commendable thing for you to do. The Master once told the following story about a certain chaste saint. Many times he used to say that all virtuous deeds, such as prayers, fasting, invocations, and saying the tasbih prayer beads, are a cauldron, but the basic staple in the cauldron is meat. Without meat, you do not experience any of these virtuous deeds. So finally, after hearing this many times, they asked that peer, many times you've used that analogy, please explain it. Meat, replied the saint, is renouncing worldliness, while prayer, fasting, invocation, as well as repetition of your tasbih, all such virtuous deeds presuppose that the one who does them has left the world and is no longer attached to any worldly thing. Whether he observes or does not observe prayer, invocations and other practices, there is no cause for fear if these things are not obligatory. But if friendship with the world lingers in his heart, he derives no benefit from supplications, invocations and the like. After that, the master observed, if one puts oil, pepper, garlic and onion into a cauldron and adds only water, the end result is known as pseudo-stew. I don't know what that is in Persian. but The basic staple for stew is meat. There may or may not be other ingredients. Similarly, the basis for spiritual progress is leaving the world. There may or may not be other virtuous practices. So what he's saying is that our, our forms of worship and our adhkar and our sessions are just kind of ingredients, but the essence of the thing has to be turning away from our attachments to the world. At-tajafi al-ghurur, as the hadith says, shunning the world of beguilement, of distraction. And repenting and going towards uh, the abode of eternity. <clears throat> Monday, the 25th of Jumad al Ula, the year 708. Conversation turned to the virtue of giving food to others. On the blessed tongue of the Master came these words. There is no merit attached to providing food just for your own people. Then he began to talk of Khwaja Ali, the son of Khwaja Rukhuddin, the venerable Chishti saint. May Allah bless both of them. He was taken captive during the onslaught of the unbelieving Mongols. They brought him toward, before Chinggis Khan. At the time, one of the disciples of that noble dynasty of Chishti saints was present, not only present, but in a position of authority at the Mongol court. When he saw that Khwaja Ali had been taken prisoner, he was dumbfounded. To himself he thought, how can I procure his release? In what way should I mention his name before Genghis Khan? If I say that he comes from a noble family and is himself a saint, what will Genghis Khan care? And if I mention his obedience and devotion to God, that too will have no effect. After pondering a long time, he went before Genghis Khan and announced, the father of this man was a saint who gave food to people. He ought to be set free. Did he give food to his own people, asked Genghis Khan, or to people who are strangers? Everyone provides food for his own people, replied the courtier, but the father of this man gave food to strangers. Genghis Khan was very pleased with this reply. 
A true saint, he noted, is someone who gives food to God's people and immediately he ordered them to set Khwaja Ali free. He also gave the saint's son a cloak and apologised for having detained him. In every religion, concluded the master, giving food to others is a commendable action. Thursday the 13th of Jumadathani, 708. You have to remember that Khwaja Nizamuddin is not just fasting in Ramadan, but fasting the white days, the three moonlit nights at the middle of each lunar month, and also um, very frequently at other times as well, observing the fast of Dawood, which is fasting alternatively, alternate days. So this assembly is a long discussion of fasting with detailed reference to prophetic precedents and their interpretations. If someone fasts continuously, explained the master, the pain of fasting becomes easy for him. The reward is greater, however, for the person on whose soul the act of fasting weighs more heavily. Hence the fast of David is this, one day you fast, the next day you break the fast. Thursday 27th of Jumadathani 708. When evening came, and it was Friday evening, a woman presented herself to the master and professed allegiance to him. She took her be'ah. He then began to comment on the numerous benefits that accrue from the virtue of women. And here you have his uh, uh, famous image. The master then declared that dervishes who ask saintly women and saintly men to pray on their behalf invoke saintly women first. When a wild lion comes into an inhabited area from the forest, he explained, no one asks, is it male or female? Similarly, the sons of Adam, whether they be men or women, must devote themselves to obedience and piety. Thursday, the 25th of Sha'ban, the year 708. He then began to tell the story of a certain grocer who fasted for 25 years. He informed nobody about his practice. Even the members of his own household did not know that he was fasting. If he was at home, he would lead people to believe that he had eaten at his shop. And if he was at his shop, he would lead people to believe that he had eaten at home. The basis for spiritual endeavours must be a sound intention, observed the Master, because while people note what you do, God Almighty takes note of what you intend to do. When your intention is fixed on God, then a little amount of work will be greatly rewarded. <coughs> in this connection, he told a story about the Friday Mosque in Damascus. It had a large waqf endowment. The administrator of that place was such a powerful person that he was almost equivalent to a second emperor. Indeed, if the emperor had a monetary need, he would take out a loan from the endowment administrator. Now it happened that a dervish who hankered after those endowment funds began to practice obedience and devotion in the congregational mosque of Damascus in the hope that he might gain fame and be offered that religious trust. For some time he busied himself with acts of worship, and yet no one mentioned his name. Then one evening the power of his worship caused him to repent of his hypocrisy. He made a pact with God Almighty. I will worship you for your sake alone. I'm not making this pact in order to obtain control of that trust. He continued to busy himself with acts of worship, omitting no detail and performing everything with sound intention. Before long, some people approached him to take the job of administering the mosque endowment. No, he told them, I've left that. 
For a long time I've been very desirous of such a position, and it's only because I've left it that they now offer it to me. In short, he continued to busy himself with God Almighty and did not become tainted by engaging in the occupation of administering the waqf. Monday, the 2nd of Safar, 713. One of those present remarked, some persons, when speaking about you, it's about Khwaja Nizam ad have ascended certain pulpits in the city and have gone to certain places and proceeded to say such unseemly things that we cannot repeat them here. The master, may Allah bless him, replied, I pardon them all. What sort of place would it be were men to be constantly engaged in hatred and slander of others? Everyone who speaks ill of me, I pardon him. You also must pardon slanderers and not harbour any enmity towards them. After that, he spoke about a certain chajo of Indrapats. Continuously, he would speak ill of me and wish me ill. Speaking ill of others is one thing. Wishing them ill is something else, still worse. In short, the third day after he died, I went to his grave and offered prayers on his behalf. O oh Allah, I prayed, whatever bad thing he said about me or bad thought he harboured of me, I forgive him. Would you please not punish him on my account? In this connection, he said, if there be trouble between two persons, one of them should seize the initiative and cleanse himself of ill thoughts towards the other. When his inner self is emptied of enmity, inevitably that trouble between him and the other will lessen. <clears throat> Wednesday, the 7th of Rajab, 715. He began to speak about repentance. Repentance is of three kinds, past, present, and future, he explained. Repentance of the present means repenting and feeling regret for whatever wrong one has done. Repentance of the past means being reconciled with one's enemies. If someone, for instance, takes 10 dirhams from another and then says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that is not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance consists of giving back the 10 dirhams and admitting that one has done a wrong. That is real repentance. And if someone speaks ill of another, he should go, offer apologies, ask pardon of that person and be reconciled with him. And if that person who has spoken ill of died before reconciliation was possible, what to do? One should act as if he were still alive and had been spoken ill of. In other words, one should say such good things about him, even after his death, that he will be well remembered. And what to do if one kills a person who dies without an heir? One should free a slave. That is to say, you cannot bring the dead to life, and so instead you should free a slave. In freeing a slave, it is as if one has brought a dead person back to life. And what to do if one commits adultery with another man's wife? There is no provision in Sharia that one should go and apologise to the husband. What to do then? Go and seek forgiveness from God. In the same vein, he spoke about a wine drinker who decides to repent. What should he do? He should give soft drinks and cool water to the people of God, for every act of penance should be consonant with the sin that was committed. <clears throat> the second kind of repentance, he continued, pertains to past sins, that is, what has just been described. As for the third kind of repentance, that pertains to the future. One makes the resolve never to sin again, never again to commit such sins as one previously committed. On this point, he told a story about the time when he professed allegiance to Sheikh al-Islam Farid al-Din, 
and also repented of his former misdeeds. Several times on his blessed lips came the remark, one should be reconciled with one's enemies, and he kept stressing that one must make restitution to those who have a claim on you. Then I recalled that I owed 20 jitals to a certain Hindu and also that I had borrowed a book from another and had lost it. As the great Sheikh, may God illumine his grave, continued to speak about reconciliation with one's enemies, I realized that he was indeed the channel for disclosing the world of secrets. So he was talking about me. I resolved to return to Delhi in order to settle my accounts with these two men. On reaching Delhi from Adrodan, I first went to see the man to whom I owed 20 jitals. He was a cloth merchant from whom I had purchased a robe. At no time did I manage to save 20 jitals that I might repay him. It was difficult for me to make a living. Some days I would earn five jitals, other days ten jitals. As soon as I managed to save ten jitals, I went to the house of that cloth merchant and called up to him. He came out of his house to meet me. I told him, I owe you 20 jitals, but I do not have the means to pay you the full amount at one time. I have brought you these 10 jitals. Take them, I will bring the other 10 shortly, if God Almighty wills. When he'd heard me out, the man remarked, fine, you have come from a saint. Then taking the 10 jitals, he told me, I forgive you the 10 remaining jitals. Next, I went to see the man whose book I had borrowed. When I met him, he did not recognize me. Who are you? he asked. Oh, sir, I replied, I am the person who took a book on loan from you and lost it. Now I will seek to make another copy of the book like the one you lent me, and I will bring it to you. When he had heard my pledge, this man replied, fine. You show the influence of the place from which you came. I forgive you that book. Saturday, 10th of Ramadan, 716. Conversation turned to Tarawih prayers. Do you say these prayers at home or in the mosque? He asked me. At home, I replied, but the prayer leader of the mosque is a virtuous man. Yes, noted the master. Once in the congregational mosque, he completed a full recitation of the whole Quran during Tarawih prayer. Every evening, I added, that prayer leader, whose name is Sharaf al-Din, reports a juz of the Quran. The master, may God remember him with favor, remarked, indeed he does. One evening I said prayers behind him. Even though there had been heavy rains that evening and the streets were full of mud, I still went to say my prayers. With such care did that man recite the prayers that he seemed to pronounce each letter as correctly as it is possible to pronounce it. In this connection, the master began to talk about a scholar from Sunam. His name was Maulana Dawlatiar. He too would recite prayers so eloquently that no one could succeed in reciting as he did. The master then began to talk about Khwaja Aziz, the chief police officer of Badaun. He was a fine man, a disciple of dervishes, himself attached to Sheikh Dia ad-Din of Badaun. From time to time, he would remember other dervishes, and summoning them to an audience, he would arrange a special event on their behalf. There was in Badaun a youth who had recently converted to Islam. He related to the master the following incident. One day I was proceeding towards the public gardens of Badawan. This noble officer was seated underneath a tree and had set up a table. When he saw me from afar, he shouted, Hello, come here. I was afraid. I didn't want to disturb him. Yet I did approach him, and he treated me with extreme deference, seating me next to himself. 
After eating some food, I got up and left. This is another traditional institution uh, that one always treats with real deference. People have recently converted to Islam. You don't patronize them, you look up to them. Thursday, the fourth of the blessed month of Ramadan in the year of the Hijra 717. A disciple of the masters arrived and brought a Hindu friend with him. He introduced him by saying, this is my brother. When he had greeted both of them, the master, may God remember him with favor, asked that disciple, and does this brother of yours have any inclination towards Islam? It is to this end, replied the disciple, that I have brought him to the master, that by the blessing of your gaze he might become a Muslim. The master became teary-eyed. You can talk to these people as much as you want, he observed, and no one's heart will be changed. But if you find the company of a righteous person, then it may be hoped that by the blessing of his company, the other will become a Muslim. And then in connection with sincerity and honesty among Muslims, he told the following story. There was a Jew who lived in the neighborhood of Khwaja Bayezid Bistami, When Khwaja Bayezid died, they said to that Jew, why did you not become a Muslim? He replied, if Islam is what Bayezid professed, then I cannot attain it. But if it is what you profess, then of such an Islam, I would be ashamed. Sunday, the 23rd of Muharram, 721. Conversation turned to the morality of dervishes and their dealings with those who harbor ill will towards them. There was a king named Tarani, recalled the master, but they killed him in an uprising. Sheikh Saifuddin Bakharzi, may God have mercy upon him, had a great affection for this Tarani. After his death, they made another man king. That newly installed king appointed a certain astrologer in a position of favor, and that astrologer harbored enmity towards Sheikh Saifuddin Bakharzi. When the astrologer had the opportunity to address the monarch, he said, the kingdom has been entrusted to you. Drive out Sheikh Saifuddin Bakharzi, for he is a master in toppling kingdoms. The king accepted his advice. Go, he commanded his astrologer, and by whatever means you have at your disposal, bring the Sheikh here. The astrologer left, and when he called on the Sheikh, he showed obvious disrespect. He took off his turban, wrapped it around his waist, and did other similarly impudent things. In short, when Sheikh Saifuddin came to the royal court, he stared so intently at the king that the latter became embarrassed. He immediately descended from his throne and, uttering profuse apologies, began to kiss the hands of the sheikh. He offered a horse and other presents to the sheikh. He implored his forgiveness, saying, I did not command that you be brought here in this manner. The sheikh departed the royal court and returned home. The next day the monarch sent that astrologer bound hand and foot to the sheikh with a message, I have given the command for this astrologer to be killed. Now I'm sending him to you. In whatever way suits you, kill him. As soon as he set eyes on that astrologer, the sheikh at once freed his hands and feet. He made him put on the cloak that he, the sheikh, was wearing. Today join with me, he said, in remembering God. That day was Monday. The sheikh went to the mosque to offer his customary remembrance of God. He took the astrologer with him and ascending the pulpit, he spoke the following couplet. To, do, to those who do me wrong, I would, if possible, do only good. After narrating this story, the master observed, 
Every action that comes from man, whether good or bad, the creator of that is God Almighty. Hence, whatever is done is done ultimately by God. Why then should I be disturbed by someone, no matter what he does? Tuesday, the 17th of Safar, 722. Conversation turned to the generous disposition of the dervishes and their beautiful conduct. One evening, he recalled, a thief entered the house of Sheikh Ahmad Nahrawani. May God grant him mercy and comfort. And this Sheikh Ahmad was a weaver. The thief searched the whole house and found nothing. He was about to leave when Sheikh Ahmed cried out and made him promise that he would wait a minute. Sheikh Ahmed then looked into his own workshop. He took a bundle of yarn that he himself had made and from it spun several reams of yarn. After separating these reams from the rest of the yarn, he offered them to the thief. Take them, he said. The thief took them and left. The next day that thief, together with his mother and father, returned. Touching their heads to the ground before Sheikh Ahmed, they repented of their thievery. So those are some uh, drops from the ocean of that small proportion of the sheikh's uh, gatherings which have been recorded by Amir Hassan Sijzi. And they give us perhaps, uh, uh, in a way better than just an academic discourse, could uh, a sense of the perfume that attended those amazing transformative gatherings. And what we find in them is uh, an extraordinary embrace uh, of humanity in its difference, of the uh, sinner and of the non-Muslim and of disadvantaged classes of society, of women, uh, they're all welcome on his carpet. And this was the way in which the subcontinent traded up to Islam, not through the muftis and the ulama-i kiram, and not through the sultans, but through this kind of uh, humble teaching, simple uh, loving, effective. So perhaps the moral of today's lesson is if we wish not just to survive in our Western diaspora, but to thrive and to expand, uh, perhaps we should humble ourselves, have more respect for our neighbours, fuss less about Islamophobes and try to melt hearts because that's the most important part of the human being. So may Allah uh, bless us in this month of Ramadan and send down his mercy upon us as we remember those of past ages who were such munificent distributors of his mercy, insha'Allah. Taqabalallahu siyamakum, barakallahu fikum, wassalamu alaikum rahmatullah. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.